uh, you can flip to Ecclesiastes 8 if you haven't already. And this is a bigger section, but we're going to kind of go through it fairly quickly. Ecclesiastes 8, and then we will um, kind of go through chapter 9, verse 10. So we're calling this message, Cheerful Hearts Neglected Justice. Let's pray, and then we'll work through, work through the Bible. Our Father and God, we, we pray as we look to your word that your Holy Spirit would guide us and challenge us and sustain us for the, uh, for the task that's before us. Um, would you open our eyes and ears and our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been journeying through, this is, uh, I believe, week seven of Ecclesiastes. We've been walking through the book, and we just like to, sometimes we do topical sermons, but we kind of go back and forth, and and we work through books of the Bible. And of particular interest is Ecclesiastes. It's been something that I've I've taught before. We went through it six years ago when I was pastoring in Michigan, and I kind of wanted to revisit it and kind of redo it, if you will. And so here we are in chapter 8. And basically this section, just to give you a quick overview, explores the terrain of power and authority as it centers around a civil magistrate. It's an interesting passage here just for the few um, sections or the few verses of chapter 8. He basically says that even the king must face the grim realities of work and more so the king's servant. He's going to illustrate for us this king's servant in the uh, chambers in the court of the king. So there is to be wisdom in our strategies and, there, and, and in tactics as well as it pertains to righting various wrongs. There's a way to right a wrong that's right, and then there's a way to try to right a wrong that's wrong. And that's going to be our main focus. So the preacher, he gives us advice about how to deal with the magistrate, um, but he departs very quickly from that example to draw out a larger issue, namely how to have a cheerful heart when justice is neglected. He ever lamented, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we're going to discuss that. <laughs> so the injustices of life causes him to reflect on, on the larger enigmas and puzzles of life, and this ends in the ultimate certainty of death. And he says, basically, faith is the only remedy. The only way out of this is faith, faith in Christ. So that's where we're going to go today. Look at verse 1. And I'm going to read some, make some comments, and then we'll pull out some application toward the end. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1, Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his face to beam. The king's advisor is is in view here and he says that uh, causes his stern face to beam, which is interesting. The king's advisors here, this person assists kings in matters of jurisprudence and basically general governorship of the kingdom. He's the advisor, his closest confidant, somebody he looks to. And it's assumed that wisdom, that this guy is going to be wise. No king's going to hire a, a, a fool that he knows is a fool to advise him on matters. No one does that. But he's trusting this guy has wisdom and that his face, of course, is full of uh, of, of, of wisdom. It beams. It's a countenance of a man. Proverbs 15, 13 says, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. So, you know, somebody walks in the door, why the long face? <laughs> well, usually what's on the face is what's going on in the heart. That's kind of how it works. Look at verse 2. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Now, advisors to the king ought to remember that there is an oath-bound nature to the civil magistrate and that God has indeed established 
the civil sphere for the punishment of evil and for the rewarding of good. That's Romans 13, the first few verses. So if, if pagan governments are going to be toppled, they must be undermined by faithful, judicial, judicious rather men who fear God all the way through. Uh, we have to be in fear of God before, long before anything. And he asks the question, or he says rather in response, keep the command of the king. There is an oath there. Uh, I remember Solomon's writing, and he, he was a very wise, very wise king. Verse 3, do not be in a hurry to leave him. He's telling the advisor, do not be in a hurry to leave. Do not join in evil matter, for, for he will do whatever he pleases. See, dealing with magistrates is not a zero-sum game, he says. If, if an advisor were to turn his back on the king and hastily walk out of the court... This would have been considered treasonous behavior. Wise advisors, they don't go that route. They don't throw a pity party and walk out, oh, the king didn't listen to my advice today. They didn't do that. They don't join in evil matters. In other words, um, prudence in your life, judiciousness, thoughtfulness, consideration ought never to be misunderstood to mean compromise or faithfulness in your life. There's a way to be right, and then there's a way to be wrong about what is right. You can be right about what's right, but you can also be wrong about what's right. Verse 4, since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? It's an interesting passage. It's sort of an odd section of scripture because it doesn't feel like it fits chapter 7, but then it kind of shifts his mindset a little bit in the rest of chapter 8. But he's talking about kings and authority, and who's going to say to him, what are you doing? See, he's giving advice. He's giving advice. He's using the illustration of a king's advisor, someone who, um, whether that's you know, the, the inner circle of the president or wh- whoever, he's giving them advice and saying essentially that restraining oneself from being right in all the wrong ways is wisdom. The wise person isn't just someone who's right about what's right. They're right about what's right even when other people are wrong about what's right. They're persistent. They're judicious. They're thoughtful. That's what wisdom does. See, impulsive emotionalism requires a restraint from all the temptations of rash sensationalism. Think of the news headlines. If that's not sensationalism, I don't know what is. Okay, Restraining yourself from all of that is is wisdom. Verse 5 and 6. He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. See, even when things are entirely insufferable, (laughs) you have to exhibit patience, right? And who among us does that perfectly? Verse 7 and 8. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. In other words, we should not be so arrogant to assume that our vanity-stricken condition of being a vapor is somehow inherently prioritized over against the king's same vanity-stricken condition. Some of you haven't been here for this series. But the whole premise of Ecclesiastes is life is a, it's vanity, it's repetitious. And that's not something we're to bemoan. We're supposed to embrace it. We're supposed to actually enjoy the fact that the grass does grow and you have to wash the dishes again. 
and it's this repetitious cycle. You have to put gas in the car, you have to pursue diaper changing, some of us more often than others, but you, you, we have these things in front of us to do and it is vanity and it's repetitious and it seems totally monotonous and it seems pointless. And some people have a view of life where everything is pointless. It doesn't matter, so I'll just do whatever I want. But Solomon says, no, 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 no. God enjoys watching the sun go up and down. God enjoys watching the grass grow. God enjoys, thankfully it's coming soon, the leaves budding, right? God enjoys that every single year. So you should enjoy it. That's the, the premise. So don't assume, though, in your arrogance that somehow your life is more important than the next. We're all made in the image of God. So no one can tell what's going to happen, he says in verse 7. No man has the, that type of authority. No, none of you in this room has authority over your own date of death. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's not yours to control. So none of us can do that. None of us are sovereign over those things. Like soldiers in war, we cannot discharge ourselves. And evil, once you're sucked into it, will never let go. It doesn't like to let go of you. In other words, to just say it differently, when bullets are flying, no one is thinking about a furlough. You're in, a, you're in this world. You're in this fight against evil. And you can't just discharge yourself. You can't just run away from it. Even in death, you cannot escape the living God. Verse 9. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So now he's kind of applying this issue of the, of the magistrate and the court and, and now justice as it pertains to the land. In light of this aforementioned case study of, of the king and his advisor, it is true, evil does run rampant. It does run rampant. And poor legislation does come out of the moral poverty that can be a Congress that's in rebellion against God. Authority, if not wielded properly, can hurt innocent people. Okay, um, You may, may or not know about this, and I'm still learning about the facts, but there was a young man who was shot in his home by police at 4.30 a.m. That's injustice, okay? While he was sleeping. When you look at these things that go around us in the world, well, how, do we, how do we respond? Well, there's authority in the world that hurts other people. So there's a way to have authority, and then there's a way to not have authority. But he keeps going. Look at verse 10. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did, the, where they did thus. This too is futility. The holy place, you should know, is the judgment seat of the magistrate. Those who do evil are sometimes lauded during their ostentatious burials. Um, wicked, wickedness is praised, and then it's forgotten, all right? Uh, how many of you think deeply about um, Joseph Stalin, <laughs> day in and day out? Not really. Not that we should ultimately forget the atrocities of communism, but none of us need to, you know, navel-gaze ourselves to death with that fact. Let me apply this. There are people, for example, when I go to Zambia and I, I have to deal with this, there are people that think the socialist Robert Mugabe was good for Zimbabwe. And he died last year. And when, and when I was in Zambia, a lot of that was going on, and people you know, celebrated this, this political leader who was a socialist, who perpetuated a lot of injustice, who de he debased the currency. There was all these issues. So he says, D -d -d you know, don't go that route. They're going to have a great funeral. But 
people will quickly forget about what actually happens. See, injustice in the seats of power is absolutely oppression, as we'll see shortly. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Now, in biblical law, when you study Deuteronomy and Exodus and places, in biblical law, a swift trial with witnesses and due process is a mark of justice. And Jesus got none of that. It was an entire, it was a, you know, a, a court trial at night, which was illegal. Um, they wanted to keep it quiet. Uh, there's a reason that, that um, trials are to be public, and juries are a biblical concept too, uh, being exonerated by your peers if injustice has occurred, and so on and so forth. But when, when real evil is really extinguished, when we think about biblical law, murderers and rapists and kidnappers and traffickers given the death penalty, when, when a sentence is given quickly, for example, evil is put on a short leash. When, it, when injustice is given a long rope, it will turn that wiggle room into a noose to hang other people. That's what it does. That's what he's saying. The point of capital punishment, for example, in Scripture is to make future participants think twice about their lack of self-control. It's meant to be a governor on humankind, mankind's inability to always govern himself correctly. When a sentence is not done quickly, more evil perpetuates. Without the internal governance of the Holy Spirit, fallen men will be more apt to do more evil. Couple that lack of internal governance by the Holy Spirit with a lack of a lack of external governance, and you have evil upon evil. You have a recipe for disaster. Look at verses 12 and 13. He continues, Although a sinner does evil, does evil a hundred times, and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. In other words, just because an evil man lives to be a hundred doesn't mean he's done well. That happens. The difference, of course, is always ethical and eternal, not numerical and temporal. I'll say that again. The difference is ethical and eternal, not numerical and temporal. It will be well for those who fear God, he says. Why? Because God gives the righteousness. God saves. Christ saves. His blood covers us. But it will not be well for those who don't fear God for this very same reason. Because Christ saves. Because Christ gives us his righteousness. It's the same issue. God gives us the righteousness. And that should either put fear in the hearts of, his belie- of believers or fear in the hearts of unbelievers. Verse 14. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. Here's your, here's your passage. You always wanted to know why do good things why do bad things happen to good people? See, one problem that stands out as he surveys the terrain of authority and power and injustice and all this is that it, and it's a true enigma. It's puzzling. But it's the fact that sometimes it is the righteous who suffer the consequence of evil. Um, while sometimes the evil suffer the consequence of the righteous. You, know, you, you might think, you know, why, why, why does a man like Bill Gates, who doesn't love Jesus, he's a billionaire, 
and and he he he's now interested in in medical uh, um, vaccination, and he's he's delving in that. Wants everybody to have all these all these ju- drugs injected into them, and all this stuff. Why does a man like that get to have all the money, right? We we could go the route of 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 covetousness or um, you know have malice towards him or what have you, but. Isn't that not an example of, of r- true righteous capitalism? You, you develop a product, the world takes it by storm, and he, he earned it. Now, I don't know what sort of backroom things happen. Maybe some unrighteous things happen. I don't know. I wasn't there. But you might look at the world and think, why is this the case? Why is it sometimes that the righteous suffer the consequence of evil? You know, why, why does that happen? But then why, why do the evil seem to have the blessing of God's you know, provision. Why? What is the, what is the reality? Why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? What's the what's the issue? Well, he says it's vanity. It's a it's a fact that perplexes us. We don't understand. Who can know the mind of God? Well, what do we do with that? I'm going to leave you hanging. By the way, I'm not going to tell you the answer yet. What do we do? He says in verse 15. Of all the issues he just said, rampant evil, blessing on bad people, cursing on good people. What do you, he says? I commend pleasure. So I commended pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. The way to deal with the powerful magistrates, the way to, you know, kings and queens and presidents and so on, the way to deal with the injustice, the wickedness that we see that happens around us, he says, is to eat and drink and be merry, for God has given you your toils. Wow, really helpful. <laughs> How do you explain this stuff? You know what? I think you should just eat, drink, and be merry. See, that's where I get the title, Cheerful Hearts, Neglected Justice. Verse 16 and 17. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek, excuse me, to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun, even though man should seek laborious, laborious, laboriously, sorry, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. See, man is plagued with this glorious predicament. We are all plagued with this glorious predicament. God is God and we are not. It's a predicament though, right? Especially for you if you want to be God. It's a predicament. See, Solomon, he, he, he explores the contours of this great truth. And he's one of the most wisest men outside of Jesus. He was the wisest man to ever have lived. He cannot grasp it despite foregoing sleep. He's trying to figure out all of the vanity goes around him. No one can know, no one can fully know the business of life under the sun. We can't understand it all. And guess what wisdom is? Wisdom's fine with it. Wisdom's fine with the predicament. Uh, fools rush in to foolishness. Wisdom knows where to stop and wisdom knows where to be quiet. God limits us. We are finite. And either we will learn this and we will be content with it or we will kick against it. But learn we must. God orchestrates it all. He says we don't know how he does it. And guess what? Wisdom wisdom revels in this prospect. I mean, how, how many of you have quite figured out how the sun functions? Just gas burning repeatedly. None of us can. How? how? I mean, we can't even get close enough to check it out. 
How do we do that? How do we understand? We, we, we don't. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hands of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. We're in God's hands and we can't, we can't sort it out. Wisdom, listen, wisdom is not found in our finite ability to grasp the infinite, but in our ability to exhibit faith when it comes to the infinite. That's wisdom. He goes on, It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean and, the, and for the unclean, for the man who suffers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, as somebody who takes an oath, so is the one who is afraid to swear. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. <laughs> right? All go, to the, all go to the grave. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. So, Jesus says the just and the unjust get rainwater. It rains on both fields. Right? Regardless of the various ways that we like to categorize ourselves, there is one fate for all involved, the end of one's life. One fate. We, and we categorize ourselves in all sorts of different ways, right? Colors, red and blue, political affiliations. All. At the end of the road, there is one fate. Death comes to all. However we wish to sort out all this other stuff, well, we have to keep in mind there is an end. Keep going. Verse 4 and 5 and 6. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Contrary to today, uh, dogs in that time were considered disgusting creatures. We kind of changed that, did a complete 180 on it. Lions then were held up as noble. In this instance, he says a live dog is better than a dead lion. The, the, the state of existence is better than the state of non-existence, right? That is death. I think we can value that. I don't know how to value life when I'm dead. I don't know. I don't know if that's a concept in heaven where you get to sort of think back and appreciate maybe more, possibly. Who knows? I don't. But it's madness to see things our way instead of trying to see things that the way God sees them. For the living, they, we have this opportunity. You all, as far as I know, are here and alive and well today. Uh, and you have the opportunity to seize the day, you, to, to encourage hope in your life and faith. Um, you have the opportunity to acquire wisdom, grow in knowledge, learn about different things. Um, and you have all of those options before you're buried in the grave, before everything is with you there. You, you have the living the moment now. We live once, we die once, and Hebrews says we are judged. So to, to push aside, he says, this uncomfortable truth is madness. That's why it's better to go to a funeral than a party, he says earlier in the text. So what do we do with that? Verse 7, Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Could be gluten-free, and that's fine. Eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. See, the only possible way to deal with the vanity is to deal with the God of the vanity. 
in Christ, we are justified, we are approved. So then we go, right? Bread and wine, they're meant to be means of perpetuating happiness and joy. They're meant to be those things. We're going to share a meal and, and it's, um, Chinese is on the menu today. It's great food. I enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. But that's the point of it. The food isn't meant to be some sort of um, means of perpetuating our depression or, or you know, mishandling food. Food is meant to be enjoyed for the glory of God. So we pray and we thank God for, for the food. So don't feel bad about those things. God doesn't. Look at verse 8 and 9. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So, in other words, dress your heart with cheer, and dress your body with cheer. And I love this. I love it. No one wants to read this at a wedding, but one day I will. He basically says, enjoy your wife, you vaporous man, you. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy your wife, because you're going to die. <laughs> so, enjoy it now. <laughs> Wonderfully encouragement, uh, encouraging at a wedding ceremony. Well, I'm, it needs to be used more. Whatever your hand finds to do, verse 10, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Sheol is the place of the dead, by the way what he's referring to and where and, and where you're going Solomon says there ain't no bread and wine do your work now none of you in the place of the dead are going to grab your planner and think what am I going to do next week no one does that so do your work now do it with all your might whatever God has given and placed before you pour out your life in pursuance of it to pursue it with everything you have because you don't contemplate the beauty of life uh, in God's vainly repetitious world while you're in Sheol, in the place of the dead. So better do it now. So I want to I wanna try to pull it all together and let's just spend the next few minutes applying this. As I've already said, injustice is rampant in our day. There has been a religious revolution in our nation and accompanying this religious revolution is a legal revolution. We have a swelling financial problem, an ever-increasing government encroaching problem, and the burgeoning tyranny we see going on shows no signs of letting up. Um, case in point, Virginia as of late, um, with medical mandates, uh, loss of medical freedom, um, encroachment now for those on the homeschooling train like we are, um, being concerned about those things, the right to defend ourselves, etc., etc. There is a growing issue. We think, by and large, that we can legislate ourselves into more freedom, right? Because we think we're rather clever. Ah, there ought to be a law. Well, my position should be, is, for every law, there should be five that go away. <laughs> See, couple, couple this with mass hysteria over a virus that can be, in my estimation, defeated with proper nutrition. <laughs> you couple all this and, and you kind of throw it into a blender. It's inexorable foolishness. It's nonstop foolishness. See, the difficulty, as I see it, lies in the fact that we are, by and large, I think, trying to solve the problem and fix the problem by dumping more of the same in it. Um, we, we think we can drain the swamp of tyranny by dumping more tyranny into it. That's the logic. Perhaps if the label on the, you know, nuclear waste package was different, maybe that'll work. <laughs> we, 
We think we can repair the drywall with a sledgehammer. We think we can fix the car by removing the wheels. We don't have the wisdom of God. See, our collective creative juices are all foolish, half-hearted attempts at escaping from the reality that is our God-given existence. No God, no accountability. No accountability, there's no shame in your life. No shame, what do you get? Tyranny, oppression, what Solomon bemoans here in the text. See, we have, by and large, revolted against the maturation process that God has designed for us. And we have tried to escape from His presence. Even if, even death cannot accomplish this great scheme. The preacher, he's told us several problems in the text, but the main one is here. Men and women do bad things. He said it several different ways. Men and women do bad things. Humans rebel against God and do bad things. Some exercise authority in unrighteous ways, causing hurt. Verse 9, some respond to this hurt by sinning in their response to it. Another problem is people praise leaders whose lives were marked by perpetuating injustice. Verse 10, on top of this, punishment for crime is neglected, which in turn allows for men and women to push the boundaries of evil. Um, when there's no healthy fear of the vengeance of the civil magistrate, evil goes on unabated. That's verse 11. He keeps going. To make matters worse, there seems to be no end in sight for this predicament of injustice. Good men have bad things happen to them. Evil men get rewarded. Verse 14. What should our response be to this apparent problem? Do we bring God into question? Do we assume he is unconcerned or worse, indifferent? The answer, which I think comes as a surprise, is much simpler than trying to philosophize yourself out of this conundrum. The preacher, he rules out any attempt at trying to sovereignly judge the sovereign one. Can't do it. Who, who knows the mind of God? Who can be his counselors? The scripture is replete with, with these types of things. So he rules that out. You, you can't understand the mind of God, so figure out a way to enjoy the mind of God. That's what he's saying. That's the answer. The solution is faith. It's trust. Trust in God. See, he commends pleasure to us. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we might die. But guess what? We might not. We might not. And this too, he says, is vanity. Again, our, our task, our job as people made and renewed in Christ, right, is to fight for joy in the midst of the vanity. Both the certain vanity... Some of you are like, man, tomorrow's Monday and I hate Mondays. You got to face it. And you can face it today if you want. That's a gift from God. Or you have to figure out a way to fight for joy in the midst of the uncertain vanity, the things we don't know that's going to happen tomorrow. The, the car accident that totals your car. No one wakes up and thinks that's going to happen. You have to do it now. You have to be judicious now. You have to have wisdom now. Don't wait. Don't push it off. Do it today. See, Ecclesiastes is, is not a book that gives you permission to live a life of woeful complaint. He's not saying that's the answer. The, the answer is not you just complain louder, maybe God will hear you. It's not an invitation to depression, nor is it an invitation for you to be a whiner. The vanity, remember the car, we, we, you know, everyone gets a, a car. Everyone gets a car, but only, only the Christian who's regenerate gets the keys to the car. We get to enjoy the car, drive the car, see the wonderful air conditioning unit it has in the middle of, you know, Virginia heat. We, we get to enjoy that. 
But if you don't have the keys, you don't know how it works. You don't know what it's going to look like. The vanity is God's gift, but God gives us the gift and he gives us the enjoyment of the gift. It's even better than that. You and I can't discover the work which has been done under the sun. So enjoy the work. Don't philosophize whether or not the work exists. In short, we should fear the king, which means we must fear Jesus long before we fear the CDC. We were made upright, but we seek out many devices. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity, but they too die. So what do you do? Go, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Verse 7. Enjoy your marriage. Verse 9. Find your calling and do it. Verse 10. See, the point I believe Koholeth, that's the preacher, what he's making, I think, and it's, it's the same point he's made throughout the book, is that man is fearfully and wonderfully made, and even though man's sinful condition is absolutely an ever-present reality, we are called to fight against that, the condition and its ugly fruits with a God-glorifying enjoyment that sits deep within the hearts of men. See, we know from the rest of the Bible that there is a place to fight against injustice, the, the systemic racism and things that can be perpetuated, the slaughter of our preborn neighbors, which goes on completely unabated, the tyranny of the state who thinks that it's God and so on. We see it. We see it around us. And we can approach it as Christians in a variety of ways. Um, the, the Great Commission is ours to fulfill, right? Jesus sent us to disciple the nations, to teach them to obey His Word, that, that's our task. That's our job. And he, he promises to be with us, no doubt, but it's still our calling. It's our task. It's our job. And that calling does have a variety of facets to it, like serving our neighbor, loving our neighbor, and defending our neighbor. But there is a component to the fight that Koholeth commends to us, and this is the oft repeated disposition of a cheerful heart. One, one might read these two chapters and walk away in a state of utter, utter despondency, right? We might turn to the new news outlets and panic, oh no, toilet paper's gone. What hath COVID-19 wrought? And rather than exhibit wisdom in the face of this, we, give, we can give ourselves over to fear sometimes. We can find ourselves in agreement with the preacher that, that, that things are sometimes really bad and perhaps the answer is gluttony. Let's just eat ourselves to death. Or perhaps the answer is depression where we just throw our hands up and say, ah, it's bad. It's bad. What do we do now? See, but our options are not hedonism or stoicism, right? Hedonism says just consume, 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 enjoy it while you can. And Stoicism says, you know, just keep a straight face and don't enjoy anything. <laughs> Those aren't the options. That's a false dilemma. Eating bread and drinking wine with a cheerful heart is not hedonism, nor is it burying your collective head in, heads in the sand of, of, of Stoicism. It's faith. It's triune-saturated faith. But why is it faith? Why is it faith that we're going to take communion and then partake of some wonderful food? Why is it faith that gives you that enjoyment. Let me explain. We here at Crossing Crown Church take very seriously the problem of mass infanticide. Those, there are those in the abolitionist camp who are in our camp 
who sound the alarm. They declare a state of emergency towards babies who are being murdered on the altar of, altar of convenience and selfishness. And they're right. They're right. There were abolitionists who were sounding the alarm during the slave trade. There were abolitionists like, um, and Christians like um, Bonhoeffer and, 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 and Nazi Germany who sounded the alarm. And sounding the alarm is a good thing. And it is especially good when we're not being alarmist for the sake of being alarmist. You know, yelling fire when there's no fire, just because you like yelling fire. But rather, we're being alarmist for the sake of righteousness and justice. And there is a difference, and let me explain. See, the temptation during times of um, rampant statism and judicial anarchy, the Supreme Court is not the supreme being, remember, the temptation is for us to think that the only requirement of faith is the alarm sounding. Some alarms ring louder than others, and thus the alarm becomes the standard. But this is not faithful to the scriptures. The alarm is not the standard. It can't be the standard, for this is building a house on sinking sand. The standard is the Bible and the law word of God contained therein. And what else do we find in the Bible? You might think, well, prayer, you know, good things. Yes, yes, yes. What else do we find? We find a lot of bread, we find a lot of wine, and we find a lot of cheerful hearts. That's, the, that's what we're told to do here. And more importantly, bread, wine, and cheerful hearts right smack dab in the middle of the injustice. The point I'm making is this, and I've shared this with several people before, that the work of abolition, that's why we prefer abolition instead of pro-lifeism. The work of abolition is one aspect of a faith for all of life. There are those who stand outside of abortion clinics helping expose evil, trying to help maybe mothers who are in need and, and don't know where else to go, trying to rescue children from the slaughter, and this is good. And then there are those who stay home, have babies, feed them, play with them, laugh with them, train them, educate them, and groom them for the sake of the kingdom of God. Both, I repeat, are essential. Our contending for the faith, once delivered to the saints, is not a contending for the faith in one and only one area. We can't think we're obeying God over here while we're disobeying Him over here. Um, the problem of government schools is one, one prime example of the hypocrisy. But we are trying to build and are called to build a social order. We want to advance. We want to plant, advance, and sustain Christian civilization. And let me tell you, this is not going to happen if we won't have cheerful hearts in the midst of the injustice. It's not going to happen. It won't happen. You'll, you'll develop an Elijah syndrome. Remember Elijah, the story after the prophets of Baal, and he just destroys them? What does he do next? Does he go and drink, eat bread and drink wine and have a cheerful heart? No, 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 no. He goes and hides because he's depressed. He thinks he's the only one left. You know, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that cares about this injustice. Or perhaps worse, the opposite will be true. You'll, you'll put the blame squarely on your shoulders, and if it's on your shoulders, you're the one who has to take the brunt of it. We see this in the abolitionist movement. We see it in the medical freedom movement. People who are trying to assert liberty and justice for all. A true meaning of that? We see it everywhere. We see it everywhere because we lack the gospel which ought to give us cheerful hearts to know the difference. A couple final thoughts. My contention, and I, and I believe it's Solomonic wisdom here in our passage, is that the way through life 
is a life of faith that, <laughs> and that faith has bread, it has wine, it has work, and a whole lot of joy to get you through it all. That's faith. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us. It gives us forgiveness of sins, <laughs> eternal life, and it gives us joy in the here and now. We don't have to choose between sounding the alarm and homeschooling our children. We don't have to choose between fighting this battle over here and fighting that battle over here. We don't have to choose between, well, maybe we should um, try to elect this person over not, and, and not do something over here. We get to do all of it because it's a faith for all of life. Wives, you get to raise your children to train them in the knowledge and wisdom of God, but you will have to fight for joy during the process because it ain't easy, as they say. Men, we, we get to labor, we get to build wealth, lead our families, finance the kingdom, and we get to fight. For crying out loud, we get to fight. Too many of us are Saul. We need to be like David. Jesus was like David. He was David's son. He fought. He went to the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent. So regardless, though, everyone gets to fight. Our greatest weapon, though, is joy, the joy that Christ gives us. Bonhoeffer, back to him real quick, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he uh, tried to undermine Hitler and then scheming to take him out, and there was a lot of things that happened there. But Bonhoeffer, during this time of Nazi Germany, he wrote a letter to a friend who was getting married. And in, in this letter, he expressed um, the joy of marriage. And... Uh, this was during the Holocaust, mind you. Um, Reasoner, who's not here, he has a copy of that letter. He gave it to me once, but I couldn't, I couldn't remember where I filed it away in my digital files. But, but this letter is tremendous. In the middle of all this injustice, Jews being taken to the concentration camps, he writes this letter and he expresses joy and happiness for his friend who's getting married. It exemplifies perfectly what this passage is all about. Cheerful hearts when justice is neglected. God has approved our work in Christ. So what should we do? Enjoy the food. Enjoy the wine. Enjoy the work that you get to do this week. The fruit of your work. Enjoy it all. Enjoy the fight for righteousness. Cultivate a cheerful heart because I believe that is a faith for all of life. Let's pray. God, you've been gracious to us. You have given us everything we need, and you've given us breath in our lungs. You've given us a meal to enjoy this afternoon. Uh, we definitely don't deserve it, but we lean on the truth that your son came into this world to, to purchase a people who have been self selfish, who have been pursuing their own way, their own righteousness. Uh, we have a lot to, to bemoan, Father, but we have a lot to rejoice in. So we pray for strength for your church, that the church of Jesus Christ would wake up out of her slumber to fight, to be godly fighters, waging warfare against humanism and the evil that has been perpetrated on, on innocent people. So we pray for courage, God, will we be bold and courageous? We pray for this meal. We're thankful for it, and we certainly enjoy it for your kingdom's sake. In Christ's name I pray, amen.